Hey, Cornerstone, my name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone, and I have the privilege today to introduce to you one of our longtime leaders who's getting a chance to, to preach here at Cornerstone for the first time. If you've been around our church for a while, you know that we, we practice a, a team model of teaching, not just one main teaching pastor, but a, a team of teachers. It all comes out of what we see Paul write about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, that, that the church is served best and, and grows to maturity best as every member of the church is equipped and empowered to do ministry to one another, uh, to our community, to the, the nations around us. And, and one of the ways that we seek to model this every member idea of ministry is by having a, a community of teachers lead us in God's word. But what you may not know is that we also have a community that supports that community of teachers in our sermon prep team, a group of men and women who, who gather every week to talk through the passage it's going to be preached on, to, to help whoever's going to be teaching that Sunday hone in their message more specifically to how to care for this body. And for the last several years, one of the uh, real shaping voice in that sermon prep team has been Bob Krejcik. Bob, you and, you and your wife, Kathy, have been a part of Cornerstone for like the last dozen years or so now, yeah, right? That's about right. And how long, you've also been a longtime leader of one of our community groups as well, right? Uh, yes, most of that time. Most of that time, yeah. <laughs> so it's actually the community group that my family and I were a part of for several years. So I've gotten to benefit so much from Bob's teaching. As a matter of fact, uh, my relationship with Bob goes much farther back than that. You were a longtime elder at the church that I grew up at, and we were talking before this, realizing he's known me since I was about four years old. And it's just so cool to see how in the last several years, um, the, the friendship that's developed between us. I, I look at you, Bob, as a man that I deeply respect, that I see you as a man who exemplifies what it means to be a, a lifelong learner of God's word. Um, Bob is a guy who, he has a deep passion and understanding of the gospel. He loves church history. He loves doctrine. And he is a man who I, I've seen, especially in the last couple years, who has deep theological convictions, but yet carries those convictions with such humility and, and grace toward others. And so in many ways, you're looking at a guy that I, I aspire to be like. Um, and I'm so excited for you because he has been a shaping voice in our sermon prep team for the last couple years. And so I'm excited for you to get to hear his voice as he shares God's word with us this morning. But, but before I turn him loose, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for Bob Krejcik. Thank you for his wife, Kathy. Thank you for uh, just the, 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 the trophy of grace that you have made of him. Lord, thank you that he is a man who abides in your word, who your word abides in him, and the, shape, the way that you have shaped his life. Holy Spirit, thank you that you dwell in him, and I pray that you would empower Bob now with clarity and passion to take us into a very, very precious passage of Scripture. Lord, would you give us, your people, eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us know and be and do. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bob. You know, the one thing that Christian failed to mention is that because I've known him so long and he was so young when we first met, it makes me feel very old at this point. <laughs> but we'll pass on beyond, beyond that. Good Lord's Day, Cornerstone. I have the privilege now of opening God's word with you. Please follow along in your Bibles or devices as we read these words of Jesus in John chapter 15, 
verses 1 through 11. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Have you ever been thrown suddenly into a situation that you felt unprepared to handle? Honestly, every time I have taken a new job over the years, I have felt that way. It is unnerving for me to face new obligations and learning curves, new challenges and difficulties, and relocation. And that is just when I was switching jobs. It was even worse for me when I was jobless with no definite prospect in sight. But I know for certain that I am not alone in feeling this way in the face of uncertainty and change. And boy, have we seen a lot of that in the past few years. Now, picture how Jesus' 11 remaining disciples felt when Jesus spoke these words to them. They had heard repeatedly that he was going away, but the idea was incomprehensible to them. They were still contemplating their positions of importance in the kingdom they thought Jesus was going to set up in Israel. But by this point, the reality of Jesus leaving was beginning to sink in. So much so that Jesus had to tell them twice in chapter 14 not to be troubled or afraid. In the last verse of chapter 14, it appeared that he was ready to leave the upper room. But perhaps because his disciples looked like lost puppies, he continued teaching them in order to prepare and fortify their hearts for their new job and circumstances. As we learned last week, Jesus had already told them in chapter 14 that at the heart of the new you, the Holy Spirit would soon be dwelling in them. The Son of God, Jesus, and the Spirit of Christ had both been dwelling with them. But now, both the Father and the Son 
would make their home in them by means of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. This is from verses 20 and 23 of chapter 14. This is the great and powerful mystery of the Trinity, where the Spirit dwells within us, the Father and the Son will also be. They are inseparable in their unity. This is also the beginning of a return to humanity's original created state in Eden. Humanity was designed to be the dwelling place of God. And now Jesus was going to explain to them the key to their new and ongoing relationship with him and their intended job or purpose in this relationship. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus used a grapevine, its branches, and the gardener to illustrate his point. Now, I have no experience with grapevines, but I would like to tell you about my experience at gardening. It's a tale of three vines. Years ago, we planted two vines in our backyard. They are never watered by us, yet they continue to spread out and produce flowers abundantly. These vines generate an ever-increasing number and length of branches, testifying to the effectiveness of the vine to supply the branches with all the life and nourishment they need to grow and be productive. They grow so quickly that I have difficulty keeping them trimmed back. To make matters worse, a third vine seeded itself in our yard, and I doubt that I will ever be able to get rid of it. It grows even more quickly than the other two, and it produces seed pods, which produce even more vines, if not removed quickly. More about that later. But what proves to be a frustration to my efforts to keep vegetation under control also serves to illustrate the life and the vital organic connection between vine and branches, like the illustration that Jesus uses here. So as we look at this passage, try to keep in mind the life, the vital connection, the productiveness of the union between a vine and its branches so we don't underestimate the powerful point that Jesus is making. For starters, Jesus did not say that he was merely like a vine, but that he is the true vine. The disciples would have been familiar with the idea that the nation of Israel was the vine that Yahweh had planted in Canaan. But God's intentions for Israel as a nation never resulted in them bearing good fruit, though there were certainly fruitful individuals in the Old Testament. And I encourage you to read about Israel's failure in Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm 80. By Jesus calling himself the true vine, he indicates that he will succeed where the nation of Israel failed. He is the true Israel of God, bearing the fruit designed by God. The branches have not yet been defined in verse 2, but the intention of the gardener is crystal clear. He removes branches that are fruitless and prunes those that are fruitful to make them more fruitful. Isn't this the desire of every good gardener? 
Jesus states that the Father's goal is that the branches bear much fruit, and so everything he does as gardener is to promote that end. His pruning or cleansing removes everything which might hinder the bountiful production of good, healthy fruit. We will consider the gardener again later. In verse 3, Jesus reminds his disciples that they are already clean because of what he taught them, just as he had said when washing their feet. The one who was not clean has already departed. The father has removed Judas, the fruitless branch. Starting in verse 4, he is now ready to explain the key to the disciples' future fruitfulness, abiding. This concept is very frequent in the Apostle John's writings, and it occurs 10 times just in verses 4 through 10. I would like to consider this vital process from three angles. What is meant by abiding? Why must we abide in him? And finally, how do we abide in him? So when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, what does he mean by that? The truth behind abiding or remaining or staying in him is one of the most precious and far-reaching truths of what Jesus has accomplished for his people. Because of sending the Holy Spirit to indwell this church, Jesus will now dwell in his disciples and they in him. And that includes us. Our union with Christ is essential and central to every aspect of salvation and life in him. Let me say that again. Our union with Christ is essential and it's central to every aspect of salvation and life in him. What he has accomplished, we will now share with him his sufferings and death, his resurrection life the way Jesus is loved by his father, his inheritance, his reign, everything. We will never become God in essence, but in him we do share in the divine nature, according to 2 Peter 1 verse 4. The frequently occurring phrase, in him, expresses so much life-changing reality so simply. In verses 4 through 10, abide in me and I in you summarizes all disciples need and his promise to them. As branches, we are all absolutely and totally dependent on the life, the vitality of the vine in order to live much more to bear much fruit. Although we are already branches in him, we have the obligation and the need to abide, to remain in the vine, consciously and intentionally drawing nourishment, vitality, and life from him, rather than attempting to bear fruit by our own strength or only intending to bring forth fruit that pleases us, not the gardener. On his part, as the vine, Jesus promises to abide, 
to remain in true disciples, supplying unrestricted nourishment, vital connection, and life so that they are capable of bearing fruit that will please the Father. By abiding in him and he in them, the ultimate power of everlasting life will flow from him to us, enabling us, just like those unstoppable vines in my yard, to be fully nourished and productive. But that's not all. Every instance of the word you is plural, not singular, in our Lord's words here. To use a familiar expression, y'all must abide in him so that y'all may bear much fruit working together. We have to abide in him as the body of Christ. As the church, as communities of believers. This is the father's design for humanity. Our Lord called us to abide together in him to be very fruitful. If we are concerned about being fruitful in his kingdom, this alone should make it a high priority in our lives to be vitally connected to other believers, sharing life in him. Do you see this truth? Do you yearn to experience the life of Christ supplying you with the power and nourishment to be fruitful? Can you and I be satisfied to be Lone Ranger Christians, not bearing much fruit because we cannot bring ourselves to associate with other branches, other believers to abide together in him? These are important questions. Now that we've considered what abiding is, listen to Jesus' reasons why disciples must abide in him. The first and most important reason why we must abide in him is that it is the Father's design that disciples bear much fruit. This is stated three times, verses 2, 5, and 8, so that he will be glorified in us. By doing this, this puts God on display to the world. God's original And his ultimate design for us has always been to put him on display as he dwells in us, not to make a name for ourselves. As the shorter catechism states, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Since this is God's design for us, bearing much fruit is also proof of truly being Jesus' disciples. Verse 8. If we are concerned to know that we are truly his, being fruitful confirms the fulfillment of his design, providing comforting assurance to us. We still need to answer a basic question, though. What is the fruit the Father is seeking? You'll notice it is not defined here by Jesus. Here are three biblical thoughts about fruit. Like in a market, so in the Bible, fruit is basically produce. What is produced in disciples' lives? The New Testament speaks of the well-known fruit of the Spirit and also 
the fruit consisting of righteousness. These are desirable, Christ-like character traits. But we can go all the way back to the beginning to find yet another basic meaning. The Old Testament begins with two helpful descriptions of fruit. Genesis 1.11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And also verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fruit contains seeds. And fruitfulness involves reproduction. Fruit leads to multiplication according to its kind. In my yard, that obnoxious vine seeds bring forth more of the same obnoxious vines. But disciples will bring forth more disciples. So we know that the Father's goal, his design, is that we bear much fruit. The Father's method of improving fruitfulness, as we already read, is pruning. This is where my faltering attempts at being a good gardener are exposed. I hate cutting branches off of plants, especially when they look green and healthy, and even more so if there are flowers on them. I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's how I feel. It seems so counterproductive, yet I know from what I heard and from what I read here about the gardener's methods that plants may produce growth which works against fruitfulness. The life-giving sap from the vine should be directed to the production of healthy, abundant fruit, not to life-sapping, fruitless branches. Therefore, our wise Heavenly Father prunes the productive branches so they will be more productive. A favorite writer of mine, Sinclair Ferguson, spoke about the pruning process with these memorable words. Now, branches can't speak, but if they could, I believe they would say to the gardener, that hurts. Why did you do that to me? I love that expression. Our father prunes us by taking away anything in our lives that interferes with the fruitfulness that he has designed for us. This pruning is bound to be unpleasant to us for a time, but it is necessary to achieve his goal that we bear much fruit. The second reason why we must abide in him is so that what the disciples were lacking, and we often lack, will be experienced more and more fully. Jesus' own joy. And he explicitly states in verse 11 that this is why he has spoken these things about the vine and the branches. Once again, the Shorter Catechism exclaims that part of our design is to enjoy him forever. Isn't it sad that we often expend so much effort to attain joy from things in this world when it would come to us abundantly by abiding in him? The third reason why we must abide in him is to have confidence that our prayers will be answered. Now that's one that I think we can all relate to well. 
Disciples who abide in him pray for what pleases him. So those prayers, he is pleased to answer. The answers to those prayers put him on display. Meditate on that promise. The fourth reason why we must abide in him is to have confidence in the assurance of Christ's love for us as we keep his commandments, verses 9 and 10. He does not love us because we obey, but when we obey the one who already loves us in his son, it prompts further displays of his love. Are we not pleased when our children obey us willingly? Our hearts being drawn to them in love? And the fifth reason why we must abide in him is given as a warning in verses 2 and 6. The alternative to being fruitful is a fruitless condition. Those branches which appear to be connected vitally to the vine but never bear fruit are removed, they wither, and are burned in the fire. That sounds terrifying. For example, what happened to Judas, who from all appearances was the real deal, but his heart was captivated by lesser desires than faithfulness to Christ? We need to take heed of this warning and never be satisfied with merely the outward appearance of being a Christian. Checking off the boxes, doing the right stuff, yet never having a real living connection to Christ himself. Abiding in him is necessary on our part so that we are not removed as empty professors of faith. We are in him by pure grace, but as branches who share his life, we are called to abide, to remain in him who alone gives life. You will still be wondering how we are to abide in him. Before we consider that, let's recap. What we have seen today is the salve that Jesus originally applied to his hurting and confused disciples. Yes, Jesus would no longer be with them physically, but he would not leave them as orphans. By the promised coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Disciples of Jesus have a new internalized relationship with him, an unparalleled closeness to him. This will bring the comfort of his presence in them in a way that will be permanent and satisfying, bringing them and us unspeakable joy. 1 Peter 1.8. But at least equally important, he will be our life and our strength, not only to face the difficulties which he forewarned, but so that we will bear much fruit in our lives personally and in our ongoing task together to bring his light into the darkness everywhere. Now, practically speaking, the remaining question is how? How were the disciples then and how are we now to abide in him? His words suggest several practices which will aid in our abiding. We need to be continually aware of two realities, our inability and his life and power. 
The first reality is our complete and utter inability to do anything of lasting spiritual value by ourselves. Verses 4 and 5. Confess to the Lord. We cannot bear fruit by ourselves. And apart from you, we can do nothing. This is my starting point when I pray. For I've had far too much experience of trying to serve or please God by flexing my intellectual muscles or using worldly motivations or worldly methods, especially without others' help. Fruitless. The second reality is his real life and transforming power by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. What we are powerless to do is more than compensated for by his limitless power. Therefore, we need to trust and seek him diligently for the strength and life-giving ability we all need. Verse 5, has he not commanded this? We also need to have his words abide in us. Verse 7, so that the spirit of truth will bring truth to light and do his transforming work in us so that our prayers will be directed to his goals, not our own. Let me use one last illustration about how we can abide in him. A number of us have learned another way to gather for worship, outdoors. Now there are some, like me, who strongly desire to sit in the sunlight rather than the shade, at least when the weather is cool. But the sun moves through the sky. So I may begin in the shade, but end up in the sun. Or I may start in the sun, but end up in the shade. So what do I do? I attempt to place myself in the presence and pathway of the sun so that it consistently shines on me. I don't need to persuade the sun to shine. It already does so without my assistance or my request providing light and warmth to everyone. All I need to do is to position myself to take full advantage of its benefits. I avoid sitting close to a tree's shade, and I certainly avoid being in any enclosed place where the sun is blocked from shining. Is most of the effort expended by the sun or by me to bring about warmth and light? Well, the answer is obvious. All I am doing is trying to avoid situations where the sun will not consistently shine on me. In similar fashion, abiding in Christ involves two contributors. He abides in us, and we abide in him. He is the son of righteousness who supplies the life, the vitality, the nourishment he is expending the effort to make abiding happen. Our abiding in him is simply positioning ourselves in the best place to receive his life and nourishment. Being in the presence and pathway of the sun results in light and warmth. Being in the presence and pathway of God positions us to receive grace from him and bear fruit for him. 
This language ought to sound very familiar because that is how the spiritual disciplines function that we have already learned about in the 100 days last year and hopefully begun to practice. Draw near to God in the use of the spiritual disciplines, his word, prayer, meditation, fellowship, fasting, etc. And you will find that you are abiding in him. He will draw near to you so that you will receive the transforming and fruit-bearing grace that he supplies. Our vital union with Jesus Christ brings us the fullness of his grace, his life, his nourishment to bear much fruit as we abide in him. Let's pray. Father, I confess that it is easy to be confused. It is easy to think that it is up to us to maintain our relationship with you. Whereas really, all we need to do is put ourselves in the presence and the pathway that you have lined up for us, that you have established for us. Please let us learn how to abide in you, to remain near to you because you in turn have drawn near to us. We thank you that by your spirit, you dwell in us and we could not be closer to you. So please, in all of our weakness, in all of our inability to bear fruit of ourselves, may we abide in you and you in us so that we may bear much fruit and glorify you, Father, and prove to be your disciples. We ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.